Hello everyone, the Hedgehog here. Um, if uh, you haven't been on fanfiction, uh, just a quick reminder that I'm hoping to do a Q&A very soon. Uh, I haven't gotten any questions yet, which makes me sad. So uh, if anyone wants to send in some questions for me to answer about my story or my writing in general, or uh, what's next for me even, uh, feel free to send that in to SoundCloud if you can. I don't really know how you can. Uh, or my Tumblr, which you can find a link to also on my SoundCloud. Uh, or uh, my fanfiction account you can probably message me there as well uh wherever you want to uh i will be checking all those so yeah totally do that um and thank you for joining me The Stars Are Eternal Chapter 3 The Few Short Years At first, Arthur thought that maybe he'd dreamed the whole thing. It just seemed far too easy. He hadn't even imagined that the nation could have existed, let alone that he'd be able to find it, and suddenly Alfred had appeared as if by magic, or a puff of smoke, whatever suited his fancy. It was all frankly too good to be true, and as these things usually were, probably imaginary. Well, it was a nice dream while it lasted, but now it was time to face reality, because something like that could never, ever happen in the real world. Except by then he was awake enough to be aware of the rock that was currently busy burrowing its way into the small of his back. Arthur didn't think the bed was that hard, and now he felt the sun shining fiercely behind his closed eyelids. Oh, that's right. He'd fallen asleep outside last night because Alfred had been too scared to sleep indoors. Wait... Wasn't that all part of his dream, though? That hadn't really happened. It was certainly a vivid dream, but it didn't happen. But then the small weight under his arm shifted and let out a small grunt. Arthur opened his eyes. He was lying on the hill outside his house, the sun rising over the trees of the endless forest that surrounded the settlement. Tendrils of orange and pink reached toward the skies of embracing it. Alfred's head laid on Arthur's chest and rose and fell slowly with his breathing. Arthur couldn't believe his luck. It hadn't been a dream. It was really real. He'd found the bloody nation in one day. That must have been a world record. With a jolt, he realized that his mission was complete. He could go home now. Arthur was about ready to jump for joy and start packing when Alfred snorted a little and attempted to wrap his small arm around Arthur's middle. It was at that moment that he realized he simply couldn't leave the child to fend for himself. If he'd wanted to, he could have been a heartless bastard and left Alfred alone by himself here in this huge, unexplored land. It's probably what France or Spain would have done, but he realized that that would have been a horrible, simply rotten thing to do to a child. Any child. This child in particular was so young to be so alone in this big world that he frankly really didn't understand. It reminded Arthur of another young boy. It must have been many centuries ago by now, but... That little boy hadn't had anyone to look after him. His older brothers just tried to invade his land and make him cry. France and Spain and all of the others had made Arthur cry, had brought him down to the lowest of lows for their own personal gain. Look how he turned out. Arthur had done a lot of things in the past that he sincerely regretted, all in the name of so-called revenge, to get back at his brothers for ruining his childhood. He didn't want to see that happen to anyone, ever again. 
If he was going to be this child's big brother, then by Jove, he was going to be his big brother. The world was large and confusing, and Alfred had had his head stuck in the Stone Age. Arthur would simply have to teach him the ways of the modern world, because really, who else was going to? If he was honest, Arthur hadn't been exposed to many healthy familial relationships, but he would most certainly try. Alfred stirred then, yawned. He looked around, seemingly as confused as Arthur had been just a moment ago, until he realized where he was. "'Good morning,' Arthur grinned, though he didn't know why. The child seemed to somehow bring it out of him. Alfred looked up at him and smiled back, before yawning again. The boy sat up, rubbing his eyes with a pudgy little fist. "'Morning!' Arthur sat up, too, running a hand through his disheveled blonde hair. The blanket was damp with dew from the rapidly warming day, and Arthur set about the task of folding it up without getting too wet, while Alfred stood to the side, blinking against the bright sunlight, his toes becoming cold from the wet grass. Arthur made another note to get the poor boy some shoes. Alfred reached for the pillows as Arthur grabbed the blanket under his arm. Arthur held out his free hand, and Alfred took it. "'Ready to try going inside?' he asked. The boy paused, clearly scared, but then nodded hesitantly. Arthur squeezed his hand at what he hoped was a comforting gesture. "'Come on, then,' he said. "'Let's go eat some breakfast.' They walked down the hill and around the side of the wooden house. The settlement was still subdued, quiet, with only a few people up to begin doing the day's work. Arthur opened the front door. The interior of the front room was bright and sunny, hopefully less terrifying than the dark of the previous night. "'You ready?' he asked, and Alfred nodded, determined now. He took a deep breath, closed his eyes, and after a moment put one foot through the doorway. It made a light clunk on the wood floor. He paused again, almost lost his nerve, but then the other foot went through. He waited, as if making sure that the house wouldn't gobble him up. After another moment, nothing happened, and he let go of Arthur's hand and took a step inside. Then another. Clunk, clunk, clunk. He opened his eyes then, and turned back to Arthur, smiling. This floor feels funny. Laughing, Arthur followed him inside. The boy took a few more steps, then began to run around the small front room, enjoying the sound that his bare feet made against the dark wood of the floor. Arthur watched, bemused at this child who had never been in a house before. Alfred padded around the room for a few minutes, but then stopped. His stomach made an audible growling noise. "'Why don't we go make some breakfast?' Arthur suggested. He led the way into the small kitchen towards the back of the house. A fireplace sat wedged in the corner, and most of the other space was occupied by counters and various utensils which hung from the walls on hooks. Arthur did like cooking, although Francis would often call what he made eldritch horrors from the farthest reaches of the cosmos come to devour us all, with his annoying over-the-top accent. But what could Arthur say? He loved to experiment, and sometimes those experiments just didn't quite come out right. Eyes widening, Alfred looked around in awe. Most likely there were a huge variety of things in here that his primitive upbringing would have never allowed him to see. What's that? he asked, pointing at a ladle. Arthur told him as much. "'It's for scooping things up, uh, like soup,' he explained after Alfred parroted the answer back to him. They repeated the process several times with a strainer, a grinder, and a tenderizer, respectively, until Arthur lost patience. He put a finger on the boy's mouth and said, "'Shh, watch and learn.' The boy still managed to keep a running dialogue as Arthur got busy making something that he could only pray might eventually turn out to be edible. He talked about anything and everything, and seemed to only need the occasional nod from Arthur to just keep right on going. I think the ocean's pretty, and, 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 and there are these huge boats that float on it sometimes, like big ducks, he laughed. It's crazy, man. Sometimes I wish that I could be on one of those boats, you know? Nod. Oh, uh, but you've been on one of those before, haven't you? Nod. Because you said that Britain's across the sea, right? Nod. What's Britain like? Arthur had just finished placing a tray of what he hoped would be scones over the fire. He turned to find Alfred and thought for a moment. 
It's actually an island, he began, but it's a really big one. Uh, it's got a very long and fascinating history, and... He stopped mid-sentence, thought a bit more. You know what? Britain's bloody boring. Alfred started to laugh. No, no, really, he continued. It's filled with shallow people who won't see past the ends of their own noses while the poor live in these slums, basically buried knee-deep in their own shit. He caught himself. Bad Arthur. No naughty words in front of children. That sounds really gross, said Alfred, scrunching up his nose. Can I go and see it sometime? Hmm. Arthur thought for a second, but his mind kept coming back to all the nasty things that could happen to the poor boy there. Accosted on the street, lost in the slums, getting his cheek pinched by the Duchess of Lancaster. Maybe when you're older, he concluded. Just then, the smell of something burning reached his nose. The scones! He grabbed a cloth and tried to grab the tray from the fire. Damn it! He snapped, almost burning his hand against the hot metal. Don't repeat that! He added to Alfred as he finally managed to somehow get a hold of the tray and place it on a counter without setting his own hand ablaze. Alfred stared at the blackened, shriveled lumps on the tray, which were supposed to be scones. He reached a small hand to grab one. Ah, ah, ah! said Arthur, and Alfred swiftly put the offending appendage out of the way. Careful! Those are hot! After a few minutes, the would-be scones were cool enough to attempt to eat. Arthur supposed he could have done the whole affair properly with plates and utensils and things, but at this point he really didn't care much. Alfred held the thing in his hands and, after staring at it for a minute, took an enormous bite. Arthur waited with bated breath for the inevitable gagging that would soon ensue, but it never came. "'This is good!' Alfred exclaimed after taking another bite. "'Really?' sputtered Arthur, before composing himself. Uh, "'Of course they are!' He grabbed one from the tray and attempted to pull off a tough chunk with his teeth. He had to chew on it for a good minute before he could get it down his throat. It was disgusting. The boy certainly had a strange sense of taste, all right, but hey, if he liked his food, then maybe this would be easier than he thought. And so they lived, there in that small house in Philadelphia, for a few joyful, albeit short, years. For the first time, and possibly as long as he could remember, Arthur was actually kind of happy. Not just some artificial type of happiness that he told himself he had, but this feeling was real, genuine. Somehow he wasn't Arthur Kirkland the Conqueror or Arthur Kirkland the anthropomorphic personification of Britain. He was just simply Arthur Kirkland. He finally understood what Charlie had meant when he said to just be himself. And if he was honest, that was all he really wanted to be at the moment. The boy somehow brought him that sense of peace that had seemed to evade him for so long. Perhaps it was that Arthur didn't feel so alone anymore. It was true that he'd never truly been alone. There were other nations he could have talked to, but the ones he was friendly with were just so far away, and it seemed that he had alienated all of the others near him. France was never going to just sit down and talk to him, and Spain kept his distance ever since the whole Armada thing. Arthur had been a little scary then. He had scared himself. But that was all in the past now. He felt so whole here, so... human. And he had Alfred with him to remind him of that humanity that he had only recently realized that he still possessed. And over the few years they had together, they grew closer, and they were both able to teach each other things that they would have never learned otherwise. Arthur taught Alfred all the typical things, reading, writing, arithmetic, and how to be a gentleman, and Alfred taught Arthur many things as well, like about all the plants and animals of his land and the beauty of the raw wilderness. Sometimes, as with anyone who lives in proximity to another person, they didn't get along. They'd fight and yell about one thing or another, but these arguments were always so trivial that later neither would remember what they were even about in the first place. And really, what pair of siblings didn't fight on occasion? Even Arthur knew that. 
If he was honest, he knew it a little too well. And as they watched, the settlement of Philadelphia grew from a few wooden houses around a clearing to a decent-sized town. Some of the newer houses were even beginning to get made of bricks instead of simple wood. To Arthur's slight discomfort, it was starting to look a lot like Britain, and to Alfred's great discomfort, the colonists were beginning to encroach on the forest, driving the animals far away. Sometimes the young boy would wander far into the forest just to hear the noises of the animals that had long since fled the burgeoning city. Arthur let him alone then, when he got like that, and let him go. He knew these lands like the back of his hand, and always came back after a few hours. They did have one big problem, however, that very quickly made itself apparent. Alfred didn't age. This certainly wasn't unusual for a nation, who tended to age somewhat irregularly, but that wasn't the problem. The problem was the colonists. They, of course, had no idea what Arthur and Alfred really were, and people tended to overreact when confronted with things they don't understand. Arthur had heard about Salem, and it scared him. Most of the colonists were Quakers, who were generally pretty peaceful folk. They had made peace with the local natives, going so far as to buy Pennsylvania from them, but even the most laid-back person would begin to suspect that something was amiss when they were confronted with a small boy who hadn't looked a day over eight for the last two and a half years. This wasn't such a problem for Arthur, who looked old enough that his actual age could be left somewhat ambiguous, but in Alfred's case, it was highly suspicious when his peers grew up around him while he stayed the exact same age as the day they first saw him. The more time that passed, the less friendly the colonists became to the two of them. They stopped smiling when little Alfred waved, or pushed their children inside as he passed. When the two of them walked around the town, people averted their eyes. One time Arthur could have sworn that he'd seen a woman make the sign of the cross and mutter demon when she saw him. It worried Alfred, who didn't quite understand the change in attitude that overcame the colonists. They would have to move soon, there was no doubt about that. Maybe they'd go to Boston, it seemed like their best bet at anonymousness. But Alfred was reluctant to leave. His sister had disappeared here, after all, and part of him felt that he'd be leaving her behind by going. Hey, Arthur had said, you've still got that eagle feather she gave you, right? Alfred had nodded solemnly. So you're not really leaving her behind. You've got a piece of her wherever you go. That talk seemed to allay the boy's fears somewhat, but Alfred was still somewhat hesitant. They finally agreed to wait one month and leave on the anniversary of the day that they'd met. That had been the plan but it seemed that plans that Arthur made never really went off as they were supposed to. The bugger of it all had happened a week before they were supposed to leave. Several of the carpenters building a new house had gotten sick, and the house, which was supposed to be completed in a week for the new family's arrival, was severely undermanned. Arthur did know a thing or two about carpentry. It was another one of those things you didn't live a thousand years and not learn, so he volunteered to help out. The carpenters had, somewhat reluctantly, Arthur noted, agreed. So Arthur had helped out, and things seemed to have been going pretty well when he'd had to climb up that ruddy ladder. It was rickety and nowhere near stable, but this giant log had to be tied to the structure of the house, and Arthur was certainly not the tallest man around, so he'd climbed up the ladder. Said implement had begun to tremble beneath him as he neared the top. The carpenters had warned him that he shouldn't climb to the very top rung, but that was ridiculous. Why would it have been put there in the first place if you weren't supposed to climb it? And besides, Arthur still didn't have the height he needed. He tried to hold very still as he worked to prevent the ladder from moving, but then his leg got sore, and without thinking, he shifted positions. That was enough to make the ladder crumble, and Arthur held on to the log for a second, but that became unbalanced as well, and he plummeted downward to the ground from a height of about ten feet. He would have been okay if he'd not tried to hang on to the bloody log, which came down on top of his leg with a harsh crunch. It was broken, no doubt about that. Unsurprisingly, Arthur really couldn't feel it. 
The whole leg was just sort of numb, with a sort of burning sensation that wasn't very pleasant, but give it ten minutes and it would be right as rain. That was, coincidentally, about the amount of time it took the carpenters to get organized enough to find the proper amount of manpower it required to heave the log away from his leg. The man in charge, uh, was his name Silas? Arthur couldn't remember. Had offered a hand and helped Arthur to his feet. He called someone over to support Arthur's weight as he took a look at the leg. It was broken, all right, but a fairly easy diagnosis. The bone was sticking out of his skin at a terribly unnatural angle. We'll get you to the doctor, he said in his gruff, low voice. If they did that, then the leg would surely heal, and the whole town would know that something was strange about Alfred and him. He tried to refuse the offer, to say that he would be all right with a little bed rest, but it was hard to take his pleas seriously when his own bone was jutting out of the skin on his leg. Of course, just Arthur's luck, at the very moment he was making excuses, was the moment that his leg decided to heal. The carpenters watched as, in front of their very eyes, the bone that had one second ago been out in the open moved back into Arthur's leg of its own accord, and the wound closed with nary a trace that it had ever been broken at all. The carpenters and the other colonists who had been drawn to the scene stared in shock. Needless to say, they started packing right away. News had a tendency to spread rapidly in the small town of Philadelphia, and word of the strange event that had recently occurred that very day spread even quicker. From mouth to ear, whispered through the unnaturally quiet streets, the colonists heard the word. There was a demon and its spawn in their midst. There was simply no other way to explain the impossible sight that they had witnessed. Furthermore, there was to be a meeting in the town hall that very night to discuss just what to do. There would be no official, nothing of the sort, just old-fashioned men and women deciding how they would go about purging this threat from their community. The colonists waited with trepidation, huddled in their homes as the sun slowly set behind the trees, leaving the sky a hideous blood-red. It was the demons doing. Must have been. It was angry, and if they didn't do something, its wrath would be unleashed on the innocent colonists. But as the full moon arose ominously in the sky, nothing happened. So slowly, one by one, the colonists made their way to the meeting hall. They tried to stagger their arrival so as to not alert the demon of the goings-on. Demons were cunning and clever. The colonists would have to tread carefully. They felt like prisoners in their own settlement. They sat in the meeting house, figures in blankets huddled on the hard wooden benches, in silence, waiting impatiently for any stragglers. The air was so thick with tension that you could have cut it with a knife. Even the flames tiptoeing on their candles seemed to tremble with fear. Finally, Travis the blacksmith peeked his suntan head through the heavy wooden doors and entered, his wife and two daughters following behind like ducks. He closed and bolted the door behind him. There was a moment of silence then. The colonists were reluctant to begin. Mothers clutched their children to them, begging them to be quiet as they sniffled back their tears. The men and boys fingered their guns, far too nervous to be safe. Demons could do terrible things to the good, God-fearing people of the town, and the colonists feared for their lives. Then, sighing deeply, Silas Carmichael, the carpenter, and most respected man in Philadelphia, rose to his feet. He was a bear of a man, strong, with a grizzled black mane on his head, which was slowly but surely fading to gray. Rubbing a hand along the scruff of his chin, he began to speak. "'Well, gentlemen, it looks like we have a demon in our midst.' This broke the spell, and the colonists erupted into chatter. "'I saw it with my own eyes,' said a thin, reedy man. "'His leg healed all by itself. The bone just moved back into his leg. It's the work of the devil!' Several shouts echoed this sentiment. A woman with a baby in her arms spoke up. "'And his brother! The child never grows! He's the same age he was when he first arrived!' "'He should be my age!' said a girl with dark hair, about eleven or twelve. "'We used to pick on him before he broke Bick's arm!' An outcry went out among the assembled colonists. Mary! Another twelve-year-old, a boy. We promised that we'd never tell anybody. I'm sorry, the girl shouted back, but I can't keep quiet anymore. I'm scared. 
She began to cry. A plump woman turned to her son, a beefy boy with a vaguely stupid expression on his face. That's how you broke your arm? Why didn't you tell me? The boy shrugged, embarrassed, and mumbled something along the lines of, didn't want to get in trouble. His cheeks turned beet red as the assembled colonists stared at him. Silas clapped his huge hands together and regained the colonists' scattered attention. Hey, hey, yes, we've already decided that the two of them are no good, but now we need to figure out just what we're going to do about it. "'Everyone knows that there's only one thing to do about demons,' said a farmer, pitchfork already in hand. He paused for dramatic effect as the colonists gaped at him. "'Burn him. A solemn silence fell in the meeting-house as the colonists processed what they would very quickly have to do to the people that they'd known for several years. Some might have been thinking that they had just seemed like such nice boys, while some of the others might have suspected their true natures all along. People are strange like that.' But we may never know just what the colonists were thinking at that moment, because they will very quickly become irrelevant to the story at large. Just then, the minister's wife, a young woman with flowing blonde hair, stood up. She couldn't hold back and be a good wife any more. You're suggesting that we burn a child. A child? Alive? This ain't no child, the farmer replied. It's that demon's spawn. He'll create more like him, you'll see. Snatch your children in the night, replace them with changelings. He waved his hands around in sweeping gestures to illustrate his point. A little girl burst into tears. But the minister's wife held strong. Is that what the good book tells us? She asked the crowd. To burn innocent children alive because of something that we don't understand? God says to love thy neighbor. Is this what he would want? Another man, a second farmer, rose to his feet. Them too be the servants of Satan. God wants to purge them from his earth. A chorus of affirmation rose up behind him. The crowd rose to its feet, grabbing pitchforks and torches, shouting and hollering, This isn't right! He's just a child! The minister's wife screamed above the cacophony, but either the crowd didn't hear her or they didn't care to. We'll burn that house down while they sleep, yelled Travis the blacksmith, raising his fist into the air, and the mob followed him, shouting for blood. They ran to the doors of the meeting house and opened them, spewing out into the night like bloodhounds after a scent. Only the minister's wife remained. She sobbed into her hands at the injustices of this world and the bloodlust of man. What place did she live in where people were so eager to destroy the things that they did not understand, even if that thing happened to be a child? It was simply barbaric. She felt a hand on her shoulder then, and looked up, eyes puffy, nose running down her face, to see Silas Carmichael staring back at her, sympathy in his eyes. Those boys will be all right. You'll see, he said gruffly. I know, she sputtered. They can't die, after all. It's, it's just that... I can't believe how blind these people are, how their fear controls them. Think how scared they'd be if they knew what they actually are, he paused, considering. Maybe it's best if they do think of them as demons. She wiped her tears away on a white sleeve, tried to smile, but her face remained grim. The boy is so young, though. No one should have to live through something like this at such an age. In an ideal world— Well, we don't live in an ideal world, do we, Bessie? He said, a little too harshly. He softened. They'll be all right. I just hope they can run quickly. 